0: Uh, What I'd like to talk about today is uh, uh, the motivations for suicidal terrorism, a topic that has been on top of the agenda for uh, terrorism researchers, and that for very good reasons. Uh, And Actually, there are two such reasons. One is the epistemic curiosity about what appears as a bizarre phenomenon, and that is the readiness of seemingly unexceptional human beings not only to murder innocents, children, uh, women, old people, innocents and and non combatants but also to lose their own lives in the process, which seems to run counter to the basic human need for, uh, for survival. The second reason is pragmatic. Presumably, understanding profoundly terrorist motivation is a preconditioning for altering such motivation, which could furnish a useful tool in the battle against terrorism in counterterrorism. Now, many recent analyses have addressed the topic of terrorist motivations, and uh, the authors, however, varied in the kinds of motives that identif- they identified as crucial to suicidal terrorism, and also in the variety of motives that seems to, to uh, be involved. Some people identified a single motive as crucial. Uh, for example, Mark Sageman is in his influential work on terrorist network, argued that it's the alienation and the quest for emotional support of uh, disenfranchised youth in Muslim uh, diasporas in Europe that propels them to form terrorist networks uh, and, and subsequently acts of terrorism, including suicidal terrorism. Robert Pape, in counter Distinction, political scientist, suggested that it's the liberation from foreign occupation that is the critical motive that underlies suicidal terrorism. And Speckhardt and Akhmetova, who studied Chechen terrorists, suggested that it's personal trauma that, pulls, uh, uh, that has the, the, the major weight in explaining suicidal terrorism. And Nasr Hassan, who studied Palestinian terrorists, Talked about religious motivations, paradise, being in the presence of Allah, meeting the Prophet Muhammad, and so forth. Now, in distinction to authors that identified, pinpointed a single motivation as critical, some authors were less committal and uh, outlined a whole potpourri of motives. So Mia Bloom talked about honor, dedication to the leader, status, pain of personal loss, coercion, humiliation, feminism, proving that women can also do it and can contribute, therefore, to their society. Even longer list uh, of uh, potential motivations uh, was uh, proposed by Jessica Stern, uh, ranging all all the way from personal and group-based humiliation to money for one's family. Now, given this heterogeneity of motives, one is moved to throw one's hands in despair and ask, whether there is a motive that cannot explain suicidal terrorism. One logical step of reducing that heterogeneity is to lump the motives proposed into broader motivational categories. And in fact, several authors have taken such a step and the classification they proposed was a distinction between personal circumstances and ideological reasons. Personal causes and ideological reasons. So, for example, uh, the alienation, the di- disenfranchisement, the discrimination felt by Muslims in the European diaspora, or the par- uh, pain, trauma, uh, and l- loss of loved others that uh, Speckhard talked about stem from individual personal res- experience. These are personal causes that might push someone to become a terrorist. On the other hand, uh, liberation from foreign occupation or uh, obedience to the commandments of God are ideological reasons that transcend any individual's personal life circumstances. And a third category that appears in some analyses is a, of uh, social duty of obligation, whether internalized or conveyed by. Uh, by peer pressure and this uh, this type of motivation is frequently mentioned in reference to the Japanese kamikaze of Second World War but it's highly pertinent and often uh, mentioned as well in reference to current day uh, uh, suicidal terrorists. Now this partition between ideological reasons, personal factors and social pressures is helpful. It reduces the uh, the variance but it's still incomplete. It's still not quite satisfactory. It's descriptive, at best, rather than analytic, and it falls short of of, uh, delineating or unearthing the underlying dynamic of suicidal terrorism. Several questions remain. One question is, are any of these motive categories unique to terrorism? And of course, you do not have to be a rocket scientist to realize that the answer is a resounding no. No. Pain, trauma, and alienation can foster a variety of nonviolent activities. So can ideological reasons and and, and social pressures. As concerned ideology, for example, Mahatma Gandhi identified nonviolence as the supreme means of uh, liberating uh, his country from from British rule. And and of course, uh, nonviolence was embraced by Martin Luther King in the civil rights struggle in, in our country. So the question is, uh, and, and the same can be said about social pressure. Social pressures uh, constitute a general mechanism uh, capable of eliciting any kind of ideological commitment, not necessarily a commitment to violence. So the question is, what precise role each of these factors plays in fostering terrorism and under what conditions? Another question was which of these motive categories is the authentic motive? And, 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 and as opposed to being a kind of post-hoc rationalization? And different authors differed on, on that uh, score. Some authors emphasized the personal circumstances as being the real motive. Uh, would the real motive please stand up? Well, they said that the personal circumstances, personal factors, Personal traumas are the real pushing force. Uh, the political statements appear less of a driving force than as a means of rationalizing their actions. Mark Segemann was of the same opinion. Jihadist is not religious. jihadist motivation is not religious, it is psychological, it is personal. Other authors, however, placed greater faith in terrorist idealism, so Robert Pape talked about the fact that egoistic and anomic motives are insufficient, altruistic motives, alone or in conjunction with others, are likely to play an important role. Rohan Gunaratna, major expert on Al-Qaeda, wrote that what actually motivates Al-Qaeda is not power, wealth, or fame, but an ideological belief in their struggles. Scott Atran, an anthropologist who studies terrorism, again, uh, voted for ideological reasons. And finally, some authors like Ami Pedazur talked about different motives in different cases. Some people are motivated by personal circumstances. Some people are are, uh, propelled by ideology. In short, different strokes for different folks. And these differences between the authors require sorting out. So the questions that remain are is one of these categories authentic and if not, how do these motives relate to one another? Do they constitute alternative motivational basis, alternative sources of motivation, or are they somehow interconnected? Do they share a deep commonality? And in the remainder of this talk, I'd like to argue that yes, there is a deep commonality, there is a deep structure that Integrates all these diverse con- motivational contexts of suicidal terrorism. So, as a preview of what is to come, I'd like to propose <clears throat> the concept of, of the quest for significance or the quest for dignity as the overarching motivational category that propels suicidal terrorism. I'd like to talk about the implications of uh, this idea and the evidence uh, pertinent to these implications talk a bit about further research directions and implications for counterterrorism now the quest of significance for significance is a major uh, motivational category hailed by psychological theorists as a great force that underlies human behavior and such significance very often can be attained through the transcendence of one's personal circumstances and through an attachment to a larger cause. So for example Viktor Frankl talked about the person who is actualizing himself by giving himself through serving a cause higher than himself. Abraham Maslow, a major motivational theorist that identified self-actualization and self-enhancement as a major motivational category, similarly talked about the business of self-actualization being best carried out through a commitment to an important job, a cause that is transcendental of one's own narrow personal interest. Recently, interesting psychological research links the basic need for human survival with the quest quest for significance. And this is work on terror management theory, mortality salience, What the the argument is, is that the human species is the only species, presumably, aware of its own mortality. And why this is important is that the awareness of one's own mortality carries the threat of insignificance, the threat of ending up as a speck of dust in uncaring universe. And it's this assumption of potential insignificance that motivates people to do well in cultural terms or to be good members of their society. And the supreme goodness, supreme significance, is the readiness to sacrifice one's own life for the group when the need arises. You don't do it on an everyday basis. You do it when the need arises, presumably when there is an external profound threat to the group's existence. Now, putting the group first is highly valued and rewarded by nothing less than the promise of immortality. The group remembers its heroes and its martyrs, and their memory therefore lives on in the group's collective memory. Also, through fusion with the group, one's act of sacrifice does not mean uh, the end of one's existence, but rather one's existence is now fused with the existence of the group, and, and the group's continued existence signifies uh, one's own uh, p- perpetuity. When it comes to Islamist, jihadist terrorists, uh, the act of martyrdom doesn't even require the end of one's individual uh, individual existence, but rather continued existence in highly pleasurable circumstances. For men, it's paradise. Uh, Wedding, 72 um, maidens of paradise of incomparable beauty. For women, there are also some perks. Removal of sexual restrictions that are severe in the case of of, uh, Muslim women. Heavenly beauty, irrespective of one's worldly appearance. Meeting Muslim heroes. So that paradoxically, whether Symbolic, reflecting a symbolic immortality, uh, as a, a continued existence in the group's collective memory, or concrete existence as denizens of paradise, the act, the, the readiness to die in an act of suicidal terrorism, may paradoxically be motivated by the willing, by the uh, desire to live forever. Now this analysis may sound highly theoretical and philosophical. It does have uh, concrete implications that are empirically verifiable. One implication heavily researched by uh, terrorism management uh, researchers is that reminders of one's own mortality should augment the significance quest and the readiness to embrace cultural causes. The second implication that is the mirror image of the first is that once you adopt the cultural causes, this should reduce death anxiety. Another implication is that other types of loss of significance besides mortality salience uh, manipulations should fuel efforts at the uh, restoration of significance. And finally, a threat of potential significance loss should instigate preventive actions designed to fend fend this off. So these implications identify a broader conceptual theme, that of quest for significance, that ties together personal traumas, ideological reasons, and social pressures under one umbrella concept. Let me move to consider some empirical work that seems to be relevant to these issues. One is terror management research. What is being proven in hundreds of studies the world over is that when people are reminded of their own mortality and this is done through participants in a research uh, study uh, answering a questionnaire concerning how it would feel, what it would be like dying contemplating one's own uh, finitude, one's own death. And in a control group, people are uh, reminded of other unpleasant events. And the dependent variable is the readiness to defend one's culture, to adopt cultural causes. So, for example, in one very famous experiment, and there is actually uh, hundreds of them. It's one of the most uh, researched theories in social psychology these days. In one experiment... Uh, people who are reminded of their own mortality recommend a more severe penalty for a prostitute viewed as a deviant from, from, uh, uh, from cultural norms. In other studies, people derogate more strongly once they're reminded of their own mortality a person who is a critic of their own culture. Uh, for example, somebody who burns the America, American flag. Uh, Italians reminded of their own mortality become more in-group oriented. Uh, they display greater degree of in-group favoritism, and they tend to perceive Italy as more cohesive as, and united than people in a control condition. Recently, uh, Emanuele Castro and Marc Deschenes summarized this uh, vast value of research that becoming part of collective entities, embracing one's culture, allows individuals to extend themselves in space and time and this way to overcome the inherent limitations of an individual identity inextricably linked to a perishable body. Tom Peshinsky recently looked in Iran at attitudes of Iranian students to a vignette depicting a a martyr, a person who is committing suicidal terrorism by attacking Americans. In the control condition, where people were reminded of, uh, of uh, dental pain, which is probably not as severe as dying, but it's severe enough, and for some, maybe more uh, uh, severe than dying. Under control condition, people, uh, Iranian students, uh, identify, disidentify with a marker. They t- tend to view him with disfavor. However, when they are reminded of their own mortality, then they tend to identify with the martyr, view him more uh, positively than than, uh, in, in the control condition. Now, reminders of mortality in an experimental, artificial experimental setting of a social psychological laboratory are hardly the only situation in which one is reminded of mortality. One pervasive reminder of mortality in the war zones is loss of loved ones to enemy violence. Speckhard and Akhmedova studied in these terms Chechen terrorists by interviewing uh, fallen Chechen terrorists, by interviewing their family uh, and friends and also hostages that spoke with these terrorists during the three-day siege that you all remember in the Moscow Dubrovka Theater. And what they find is that in all those cases, there was a personal trauma. Uh, More than one family member killed in 16 of the 34 cases, father or, or mother killed, brother killed, husband killed, and so forth. In every single case. And that's what they conclude. When we looked at the primary motivation, we would have to say that it was trauma in every single case. What's interesting about the Specard analysis is that they noticed that the terrorists, in response to the personal trauma, sought out ideological inspiration. So many of the terrorists were, were uh, secular, were non-religious to begin with, but in response to the trauma, they sought out their religion. Uh, 20, 28 out of the 34 were secular Muslims uh, prior to the, the trauma. They had no prior relationship to fundamental militant groups, but they sought out these Wahhabist radical groups in direct reactions to the trauma. So there is a sense in which the trauma pushes them to embrace the ideology. There is no separation between the personal traumas and ideological reasons. W- w- rather, the one is the instigator, is the trigger, is is a a factor that increases the readiness to embrace the ideology. We know in psychology that all beliefs, including scientific beliefs, have motivational basis. Well, this could be one motivational basis for embracing uh, radical ideologies. If death anxiety instigates the embracement of cultural norms... Does embracement of cultural norms attenuate de- de- death anxiety? There's evidence that it does. Durlach years ago found a significant ne- negative correlation between purpose in life, measured by a test, and fear of death. And Mario Mikulinzer found that depriving people of a sense of belonging increases death ideation, death-related cognitions. And Jamie Arndt and others found the accessibility of death, thoughts declines after defense of cultural norms. Derogation of of the critic of one's culture. A person who is uh, anti-American, bears an American flag, is very critical of, of our way of life. The link between doing well by cultural norms and attenuation of death anxiety seems to have been intuitively understood by political leaders who required major sacrifices from their followers. Uh, So here is a quote from Mao Zedong, all men must die, but death can vary in its significance. To die for the people is heavier than Mount Tai, but to work for the fascists and die for the exploiters and oppressors is lighter than a feather. And this Overcoming of death anxiety through adherence to cultural norms seems to have played a major role in current-day suicidal terrorism. Uh, Here is a quote from one of uh, Nasr Hassan interviewees, a failed terrorist. A successful terrorist cannot be interviewed, unfortunately. And what this uh, man said is that by pressing the detonator, you can immediately open the door to paradise. It's the shortest path to heaven. No fear, uh, the ideological reward will be uh, very quick in coming. Another failed suicide terrorist, to be a Shahid is the loftiest objective, it's the biggest and most holy thing that you can do, and then you receive all the uh, rewards in paradise. We recently content analyzed all the videotapes of farewell videos of suicidal terrorists published in the uh, um, Middle Eastern Media Research Institute. And in all of those cases, those farewell videos mention ideological reasons. Primarily religious reasons, ethno-nationalist reasons, religion, revenge, religion, revenge, nationalism, religion. In all of those cases, without exception, this is a Palestinian media website, Uh, some Hamas uh, suicidal terrorists, uh, their videotapes all reflect religious uh, and nationalist uh, motivations, all ideological. Uh, uh, Interviews with uh, mothers, one father, uh, unexceptionally religious uh, uh, justifications. Now one might skeptically ask, are these for real? Are these authentic? Or are these post-hoc justifications? Are these some... uh, articulations that were put, that were prefabricated and put in the mouth of the terrorists by their organizational launchers. There are reasons to to, uh, doubt that this is the case. Uh, First, uh, from a psychological perspective, first, uh, sacrificing one's life for something one doesn't believe is simply unlikely in terms of the cost benefits, the kind of rational economic analysis. You you just wouldn't uh, very likely do it if you didn't believe in it. The second uh, is that uh, the sheer act of making a statement and rehearsing it, it introduces what we social psychologists call the saying is believing phenomenon in which the speaker <clears throat> ends up believing what he or she was induced to inside. And finally, everybody seems to agree that these arguments, these ideological arguments, represent an apparently successful recruiting device. So there is very little reason to believe that if it was a recruiting device, once the push comes to shove and the the operative is about to launch his suicidal or her suicidal mission, all of a sudden the the belief uh, evaporates. Uh, You know, the importance of, of uh, these videotapes and, and these ideological indoctrinations was brought home to me recently when, on a visit to Singapore to an institute for counterterrorism at the Nanyang Technological University, I met a young Muslim woman, Azalin is her name. Uh, Azalin is, a, like all Malay Muslims, she's religious, but she's not a fanatical Muslim. She uh, dresses in a modern way. She wears her hair long. She doesn't wear the hijab. And after all, she's an academic, holds a a master's degree. She is uh, working in an institute devoted to counterterrorism. Yet she recounted to me that the video, and her job, I forgot to mention, is to content analyze the Al-Qaeda videos. And she mentioned to me, that frighteningly, she finds these videos extremely compelling, extremely pervasive, to the point that she needs to speak every once in a while to the resident cleric to be decompressed. Uh, such is the power, and, and you know, this is a person who, who is working, committed to counterterrorism. The quest for significance suggests that... Uh, awareness of of a threat to uh, one's significance through mortality salience or actual experience of significance loss. uh, That that mortality salience is not the only category of of cues that may convey one's uh, insignificance. Other such cues may uh, emanate from one's current life circumstances. For example, the feelings of alienation by a, and disenfranchisement by, by Muslims in the Euro, uh, European uh, diaspora. They are not mortality salience, but they are cues to insignificance. They are uh, discriminated against. They are treated badly. There is an Islamophobia in Europe pervasively. Uh, another cue to insignificance can emanate from one's own group uh, when one's own activities uh, were deviant with respect to the group's norms, bringing social shame and, and, uh, and ostracism. So, for example, Wafa Idris, the first uh, woman, suicidal terrorism in Palestine, was infertile, which, according to Muslim norms, is a shameful, uh, sh- shameful circumstance. Shifa Adnan al who almost succeeded in becoming a suicidal terrorism, she was caught uh, before uh, the act, was divorced, another stigma on a Muslim woman in a traditional society. Ayat al-Akras, another suicidal terrorism, this time successful, was accused of extramarital sex, Uh, again, a shameful uh, stigma in uh, Muslim society. A 16-year-old boy from Nablus was diagnosed with HIV positive, again, a shameful circumstance. This notion of significance quest suggests that apart from threat to insignificance or experience of insignificance through social shame, ostracism, isolation, disenfranchisement, uh, the, the quest for significance can be motivated by the potential, by the opportunity for significance gain. And this can be inculcated early in the socialization process. Uh, for example, recently the uh, Egyptian daily newspaper Ruz al-Yusuf has contained an interesting story about Imam al-Mahdi scout, a uh, uh, scout organization organized by the Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, these scouts are aging between 8 and 16. They number in the tens of thousands and they are indoctrinated with radical uh, Iranian Islam. Here is the way they look. Here is another one that my assistant thought was particularly cute. And according to Rosalie Souf, the idea here is to train high-caliber Islamic generation of children who would be willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of Allah. This is the most significant thing they can do with their life. They are trained, they are indoctrinated, they are socialized to hold this belief from very early on. This is their reality. This is their path to significance. When a group is in a deadly conflict with its enemies, adoption of a collectivistic, idealistic causes can provide an opportunity for significance gain through martyrdom and through uh, uh, heroism, through, which suggests that adoption of collectivistic versus individualistic causes could be correlated with terrorism. And we recently, at our start center at the University of Maryland, carried out internet research, uh, followed up by face-to-face research in 12 Arab countries, Pakistan and Indonesia, and we looked at the tendency of individuals to uh, commit to collectivistic causes, one's nation, one's religion, as opposed to individualistic causes. education, professional development, and so forth. And uh, the dependent variable was support for attacks against uh, the U.S., and we find across the spectrum of the countries investigated that people who subscribe to collectivistic causes are more likely to support attacks against Americans, both military and civilians. This issue of collectivistic versus individualistic causes, again, was brought home to me when about a month ago, I was in Manila and had the opportunity to interview a major lieutenant of the Abu Sayyaf organization, which is an affiliate of Jama'a Islamiya, which is an affiliate of Al-Qaeda. And his story really reflects the vicissitudes of individualistic and collectivistic goals that mark the up and downs of his voyage through terrorism. So as a young man, he volunteered, he's, he's a, a, a Filipino from the southern Philippines a Muslim, and uh, uh, he volunteered to the Abu Sayyaf organization uh, based on on, uh, a collectivistic, idealistic zeal to improve the lot of the Muslims in uh, Mindanao, in in southern Philippines. Once he joined the organization, he realized that uh, although the goals are lofty, the actual implementation is less lofty, and it involves kidnappings, and murder of of innocence and so forth so he was disenchanted with those goals at the same time his individualistic goals became prominent he got married, he had children uh, he completed his education, he became a a teacher in a school he left the organization then for some reason that he uh, argues was unjustified he was pursued by the police, by the government back into the organization, back into commitment to uh, collectivistic causes. Finally, uh, again, the the hardships of uh, being in the organization, being on the run, unable to pursue his individualistic objectives, uh, led him to surrender, and now he's collaborating with the police, he's going to be in in the witness protection program and so forth. But this interplay of collectivistic and individualistic goals really uh, was extremely important in this individual's trajectory and you hear similar stories when you look look at stories from terrorists from other times and other places, members of the provisional IRA, members of the Basque ETA, members of the Brigate Rosse in Italy, Uh, and the the upshot of this is that uh, when individualistic goals allow you to attain significance according to cultural norms, your tendency to adopt collectivism is uh, is reduced. When individualistic uh, hopes fail, this provides an impetus for the embracement of uh, collectivistic uh, collectivistic, uh, objectives, which in some cases, not in all cases, not all ideologies, collectivistic ideologies, are violent, but in some cases they could be, and they could uh, provide the warrant for suicidal terrorism the notion of significant quest suggests that as the baseline of one's felt significance increases in order to have a just noticeable increase in significance, one has to commit acts of spectacular impact. And this uh, is reminiscent of a recent analysis of, uh, by Euch Prinzak, a political expert uh, on, on terrorism, of megalomaniacal hyper-terrorists, such as Osama bin Laden uh, or uh, Ramzi Yusuf. They perceive themselves in historical terms and dream of individually devastating the hated system. Uh, Ramzi Yusuf, for example, dreamed of collapsing the two towers on one another. Ramzi Yusuf was the mastermind behind the 93 uh, attack on on the World uh, Trade Center. He dreamed of a quarter of a million deaths uh, being, uh, being produced by the collapsing of the towers on one another. He dreamed when hiding in the Philippines of colliding 12 planes in the air and, and uh, causing untold uh, casualties. Recently, two economists uh, working out of the rent, center, uh, rent uh, uh, center in Santa Monica found a positive correlation between one's level of education and age and uh, mission importance. People who are educated, whose base level of significance is relatively high, volunteer only for actions that are of particular significance. And significance, in this case, is objectively operationalized as attacks on civilian versus military targets. They bring more bang for one's suicidal buck. And uh, and, uh, large population centers, which uh, produce greater casualties. Finally, when one's community is outraged by an act of violence perpetrated by the enemy, this provides an opportunity for significance gain. Everybody's outraged. If you do something now, if you act now, if you commit the act of suicide now, you are likely to reap particular rewards. Uh, We looked in uh, in, uh, these terms on the Israeli policy of targeted assassinations. And we had data, we hazard, we, we conducted Cox hazard modeling on the impact of assassinating major Hamas figures on the incidents of Hamas suicide terrorism. And what you see, if uh, uh, you could see it, is that after <clears throat> each targeted assassination, within two weeks, the hazard uh, survival analysis indicates a significant spike in, uh, in uh, suicidal activity on part of Hamas uh, terrorists. This doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, that the policy is uh, ineffectual because it does introduce this uh, uh, disturbance into the activities of, of the organization, but motivationally it seems to propel the readiness to uh, commit acts of suicidal terrorism, uh, which is consistent with this notion of a significance quest. And finally, finally, sometimes, occasionally, the prevention of s- significance loss can be uh, an important factor in suicidal terrorism or suicidal attacks. Uh, and the, the case in point is the, the story of the Japanese kamikaze who apparently, there is a recent uh, work uh, by Onuki Tierney published in 2006 that analyzed, content analyzed the letters and the diaries of the kamikaze. And she concludes that they really didn't want to die. They were reluctant to die. They wanted to live. But their sense of honor and the shame, had they refused the mission, pushed them into volunteering. So here is one quote from Hayashi Ikizo, a letter to his mother. I find it so hard to leave you behind. I want to be held in your arms and sleep. Yet all men born in Japan are destined to die fighting for the country. You have done a splendid job raising me me to become an honorable man. So, to conclude, the notion of significance quest affords an integration of diverse motivational circumstances of suicidal terrorism, uh, including personal traumas, ideological reasons, and social pressures. Personal traumas signify a loss of significance and motivate a quest for significance restoration. But very often, it is beyond the power of the individual to restore one's sense of lost significance. It's impossible to bring back to life the loved ones lost to any violence, It's impossible to erase the deeds that brought one shame and ostracism within one's community. It's impossible to convince the majority in a European diaspora to accept the poor immigrants as equals. When these direct personal vehicles of restoring significance fail, there could be a collectivistic switch. There could be a tendency to identify with a collective grievance and adopt an ideology that provides the guise to significance restoration. In some cases, this could be through an act of suicidal terrorism. Restoration of significance lost is not the only way. Significance gain is an important uh, motivation. It appears in the socialization of young people. It appears as... An opportunity for people who are doing well otherwise Osama bin Laden wasn't exactly a poor destitute youth nor was Muhammad Atta but it offers an opportunity unavailable otherwise to become an instant hero to go back to to go down in history Uh, this is uh, an opportunity that cannot be surpassed no billions of dollars can buy you that terrorism can and finally it uh, uh, integrates the idea of prevention of significance loss following dictates of honor, duty, and obligation. So the ideology here is of, of utmost significance. I will not dwell much on the research implications, but I'll go directly to implications, policy implications, po- potentially, for counterterrorism. The centrality of Ideological warrants for suicidal terrorism suggests the importance and the possibility of undermining them by credible communication efforts. And this issue of struggle for the hearts of minds of the Muslims is uh, of particular importance this day and age. Only last year, Al-Qaeda was issuing a propaganda video every three days and the uh, Al-Qaeda media committee headed by uh, Abu Abdelrahman al-Maghrabi, the son-in-law of Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, that committee is promising to intensify the propaganda efforts. So these, these propaganda efforts need to be counteracted. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, everybody talked about how the Muslim majority is silent. Well, in some Muslim countries, there is an effort afoot uh, to counteract ideologically the jihadist uh, uh, way of, of thinking about Islam, and we are now uh, at the START Center involved in one in evaluating one such effort in uh, in Singapore. Uh, in Singapore, there are about 60 Jama Islamiya uh, terrorists uh, in detention centers. They were planning the bombing of the American Embassy, the Australian Embassy, the Israeli Embassy, the British Embassy, and they were all apprehended. What this, effort, what this deradicalization effort consists of is sending clerics and jurists, ulama and fuqaha, into those de- detention centers and arguing credibly from a standpoint of the Koran and the Hadith uh, that, that terrorism is not the way to go, that terrorism is actually... Uh, forbidden by Islam, uh, and and so forth. What's interesting about this effort is that in parallel to this uh, intellectual effort by clerics and jurists in detention centers, another group is uh, working with the families of the detainees. The families of the detainees, the children of the detainees, can become uh, very susceptible to radicalization because of identification with the father, because of being destitute and poor after the major uh, bread earner has been, has been jailed. So they are a, a very important focus. And uh, these groups, these are, by the way, non-governmental NGOs based on, on a, a major mosque in Singapore, the Hadijah mosque. Uh, they work with the families, provide uh, wherewithal for the children to continue their education, provide professional education for the women. And this is very important, this is the, the heart aspect in the battle of the hearts and minds. And why this effort with the families and the youngsters is important is that it gives, presumably, <clears throat> the detainees uh, a sense of significance, that their needs matter, that their families matter. Uh, so, it, it, if it works, it should increase the readiness to listen, intellectually, to the arguments by those clerics that attempt to argue a different point of view. Of course, uh, once a person is detained, maybe too late, it's important to avoid the radicalization to begin with, to prevent uh, the radicalization. And there are important implications here, both on the military level and on the the, uh, policy level, on the political level. On the military level, it's important to minimize the uh, overreaction to terrorism and enacting uh, an a, a, a disproportional act to terrorism that may produce collateral damage and push over the brink those people who are outraged by the loss of innocent lives and uh, a push over the brink those who, who witnessed or suffered the consequences of, of, of this injustice. On the, uh, on the political level, uh, it means an attempt to implement immigration policies, foreign policies, educational campaigns that are intended to reduce intergroup tensions and reduce the sense of immigrants and other minorities that they are mistreated, that they are disenfranchised, and uh, reduce, therefore, their readiness to, leap, to make the leap into terrorism. Uh, positive intergroup contact, uh, strict anti-discrimination laws, strict anti-discrimination norms that have worked in our country to to a considerable extent in reducing uh, racial tensions, in uh, reducing gender tensions. We have a ways to go, but we have gone uh, a ways already. These kind of policies would be uh, extremely important in preventing the radicalization. It's not something that can be solved militarily. It's not something that can be solved from one moment to the next, it has to be something that is long-term and and, and very fundamental and very uh, uh, pervasive. So, to recapitulate and conclude, authors have identified a wide heterogeneity of motives for suicide missions, classifiable into personal traumas, ideological reasons, and social pressures, the notion of significance quest, the quest for human dignity, seems to provide an overarching motivational concept that explains a large uh, amount of variance in suicidal terrorism, terrorism justifying ideologies, promote significance gain, afford undoing of significance loss, and afford the prevention of significance loss. And this kind of analysis is not merely philosophical, It's consistent with empirical data. Much uh, more research needs to be done, of course. Uh, But it also has implications for counterterrorism. And basically, it's a two-pronged implication. One is on the intellectual, the battle for the minds, provide intellectual counterpoint, because everything is, is done in the name of some ideology. So ideological counterpoint is essential. And the second prong is to reduce the readiness to embrace them by reducing as much as possible the bitterness, the, the feeling of, of grievance uh, that uh, large uh, swaths of people may experience. Thank you.
1: So um, I'm going to start with uh, uh, this question. Um, and I'm going to stand here because I'm not mic'd up like you are, so okay. I'll stand near the microphone. Is it possible that suicidal terrorists often come from families suffering personal loss, not as a reaction to the loss, but rather because families who have experienced personal loss are the ones targeted by the terrorist
0: groups? So it's a causality. The the terrorists themselves target that it's not so much the loss
1: that causes the pursuit of the terrorist groups, but it's the uh, by by the by the suicidal terrorists, but the... Uh, mm-hmm. but the, the, the recruiters, the, the, the recruiters...
0: Money. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's it's quite possible, and I think uh, it's uh, not only possible, it's probable that uh, the recruiters who are very clever social psychologists, uh, they identify the vulnerability of people, they understand the dynamics that, uh, that goes into it, and they target people who feel enraged, who feel a sense of loss and a sense of trauma. So, you know, it's just the understanding of the psychology, naive understanding of the psychology of recruitment by uh, by, uh, terrorist recruiters. Uh, I think there is even evidence that this is, in fact, the case. Assuming that there
1: is this quest for personal significance that determines this and that that's a consequence of um, some degree of humiliation or loss of significance, what is it that there are there are alternative routes that people can take if they're shamed or they're or they've lost personal significance? They could, um, you know, turn to substance abuse or uh, or become just uh, isolated. So what what do you think are some of the features that that make the determination as to going one way or the other, and in particular going in the in the in the terrorist direction?
0: Well, you know, if you if you have to choose between being isolated or uh, uh, taking drugs and uh, restoring your significance in the realm of the imaginary uh, probably a better way would be to do it in a way that is condoned by the shared reality of your culture. So, uh, you know, to the extent that this kind of uh, uh, route is available and accessible in their environment that's, that's a, a very compelling alternative. They could become from people who are shunned and ostracized into cultural heroes. Uh, they would not attain that in any other way. They would not attain it by using drugs. They'll be even further pushed away from society or by being isolated. Uh, so this is really a very powerful tool that is available. Do you think it implies, though,
1: some personality characteristic that's actually a little more um,
0: promotion-focused,
1: a, a little more uh, ingenuitive or even prideful than, than somebody who would take a more passive sort of response?
0: Yeah, uh, You know, in the history of the study of terrorism, the first hypothesis that people had, uh, you know, 30 years ago, when people studied the urban terrorists, the Baden-Meinhof, the Brigade Rosse, the Aung Shinrikyo, and others, uh, was that uh, uh, these people have a certain personality profile. They are pathological. There is a uh, a personality uh, illness or or dysfunction uh, that propels people to terrorism. By and large, this uh, analysis or this uh, hypothesis has been proven invalid. Uh, and people now talk about uh, situational causes and other dynamics. I do think that personality factors, uh, although they are not the root cause, not everybody who has a, a specific personality, risk-taking, promotion focus, aggressiveness, uh, uh, right-wing authoritarianism becomes a... Becomes, uh, 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 suicidal terrorist. But personality factors clearly can be contributing factors to the embracement of the ideology that serves those needs. So they're not irrelevant. Uh, A similar dismissal of situational factors such as poverty, uh, some economists have have, uh, shown that uh, uh, individual terrorists do not come from poor families necessarily, and also times of uh, uh, economic stringency are not correlated with with terrorism, that doesn't mean that poverty and and hopelessness is not a contributing factor. So one has to uh, distinguish between root causes and contributing factors, which under some circumstances may provide the push.
1: Uh, this question, this question is is also in that vein to some extent. And what this what this person um, raises is that a specific case of Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh who is an educated physician, uh, had a lot of purpose in life and no clear evidence of personal loss or humiliation, who was nevertheless a an, nevertheless an architect of militant Islam. In a way, this question begs the question because, of course, Zwahiri did not is not a uh, suicidal terrorist, so maybe that's the key distinction, but do you want to elaborate on that, possibly?
0: Well, I think, why, why did he become terrorist in the first place, right? Uh, why did Osama bin Laden? I think uh, this is an opportunity to become a historic figure. Uh, how many of us can claim that? Uh, you know, we're all uh, successful individuals at a major... You are at a major uh, research university. Uh, I am at a research university, we cannot uh, claim, uh, w- however hard uh, we try, Muhammad, uh, Muhammad Atta with one deed is going to be uh, mentioned in, in the annals of history. Zawahiri, by being a physician, uh, will not attain... So the kind of level of significance, level of heroism that, uh, that this affords is unsurpassed, uh, 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 incomparable to what one could attain through normal means. So this is, this is extremely alluring, the possibility... Uh, once, you know, the rise of fundamental Islam didn't start with al-Zawahiri but once it was there uh, the idea that Islam was mistreated that, uh, that uh, has been exploited and, and, uh, and uh, uh, there is the opportunity of avenging uh, and, 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 uh, and uh, converting uh, uh, the Muslims to the true uh, uh, faith that affords a, a, an incredible opportunity to people who are otherwise successful uh, in conventional terms
1: and to be fair your, your topic is suicidal terrorists and that's probably a completely different category that's, a, that's slightly
0: type. different yes but there's a continuity there okay, yeah.
1: okay this is of, of a different flavor um, can you please discuss the differences in frequency of suicidal terrorism by men and women as well as any differences in motivation patterns between men and women that do
0: This is a very interesting topic. Uh, Women have been represented in terrorism, both in urban terrorism, the Baden-Meinhof, you know, the Meinhof uh, part of it, and uh, in Italian Brigade Rosse, in Basque Eta, uh, in Palestinian terrorism, in Sri Lankan terrorism. So one motivation that has been mentioned is the uh, attempt of women to... assert their significance, their possibility of of, uh, contributing to society to become uh, as important and as heroic as as can men. But women in in, in terrorist organizations are between a rock and a hard thing. Uh, To the extent that these terrorist organizations are embedded in a traditional society, that attitude toward them is ambivalent. It's not totally respectful. On the one hand, yes, they serve the cause, on the other hand, they are not really feminine in the way that the feminine uh, role demands in those societies. So there is a lot of ambivalence, a lot of disrespect. In many cases, the women, uh, in most cases, the women do not attain positions of high power in the, in the terrorist organizations. Their lot is a, is a, a rather uncomfortable one. And uh, there is a recent book on Palestinian women terrorists by... Uh, Anad Berko, and Arazi, uh, and uh, they, they reflect this tremendous conflict between uh, fulfilling the traditional role, that is, uh, what they were meant to be, according to the dictates of, of their culture, and uh, the uh, admiration to them as, uh, as participants in terrorism. Uh, it's much simpler for men. There's no question that for men, everything converges to catapult them to utmost significance.